2: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BDW. Revoid. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
3: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for January 26th, 2017, the has it really only been a week? Edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura, and here in the Slate DC studio with John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Hello, John. Hello, David. And joining us by teleconference from parts unknown, but not New Haven, is the New York Times Magazine's Emily Bazelon. Where are you, Emily Bazelon?
1: I am in Memphis, Tennessee, a lovely town. Hey, guys. Hi.
3: Hello. On this week's show, it's a pretty busy week. It was a funny week because we started to discuss what topics we were going to do on Tuesday, as we always do. And we had a topic. And then like there would be this email chain, and John would just add, oh, and we also have to do that one, and that part, and that part, and that part. And so by the time we get to today, the topics have, have spread so much because of what uh, has been happening in politics. Notably, our first topic will be, what has Donald Trump been doing? How has that working out all the various substantive things that the new president has proposed to do or has actually done. Our second topic will be about infrastructure, which is something which he is almost certainly going to propose to do. There's still openness about what an infrastructure bill might be and how Democrats might endorse or not endorse or counter such a proposal. So we'll talk about infrastructure, which we all love. We love things, built things. And then our third topic will be lying. Why is the Trump administration lying so much? Why are his people lying? Why is Trump himself lying so much? Can we call it lying? What's the nature of the lying and and what's its significance for the future? And then we'll have cocktail chatter, of course. And in Slate Plus, we're going to talk about torture and secret prisons. This is like going back to 2004 here. Seems. Yeah. Emily's and gonna have who to, wants
1: to be there again.
3: Emily's gotta brush off all her waterboarding expertise. She's gotta go find some secret sites and remember what was horrible things were being done in our name there. Before we get started, though, we have a very exciting announcement. As some of you may have seen on social media, we have a live show in Los Angeles on March 1st. This is our very first live gapfest in Los Angeles. It's gonna be at the Ace Hotel. Tickets are at slate.com/slash live it's going to be great. There's so much political news. And March 1, we will have a kind of a clearer outline of what's going to be happening in politics. And it'll be a very, very good time for a live show. We want to see you if you're in LA, if you can get to LA, if you're near LA, if you can get over that border fence from down in Tijuana, please join us slate.com live for tickets. Tickets are apparently selling briskly. Briskly. Briskly, I believe.
1: That's better than sluggishly.
0: Yeah. No, but there, uh, there's been tremendous response.
3: That's good to hear. <laughs> a great city. One of the greatest cities. One of our greatest cities. We're going to bring jobs back to there. So, Donald Trump is now the president. He wasn't the president when we taped last week. He is now the president, and he has had a very busy week. Just to name a few things that he has done, he has announced, ordered the construction of a wall along the Mexican-American border. He has announced, I'm not sure officially, but certainly implicitly, there will be some sort of ban on refugees and immigration from certain countries until there can be more extreme vetting for potential refugees from those countries. He has announced plans to build the Keystone and Dakota Access Pipelines. He has re a gag rule on abortion relating to international aid that Emily will elaborate on. He has gagged various government agencies. This is not maybe as, as sort of being done as officially, but huge numbers of government agencies appear not to be able to talk about anything that's going on to the media or the public. He has promised a crackdown on sanctuary cities. He's imposed a hiring freeze on the federal government except for the military. And also he has declared that he there were three to five million illegal votes which hurt him in the election. So
0: that's a lot of things, John. I probably missed some. Yeah. <laughs> what did I miss? Um, did you do a D- Dakota? The major investigation and, yeah. and, uh, about the
1: vote fraud. Uh, oh, yes,
0: yeah, the major investigation that's going to happen about the vote fraud. Let me think what else you – The non-existent you, uh, vote fraud. Uh, uh, you got the wall, extreme vetting. Uh, did you do Mexico City? No, what's Mexico uh, City? That's the Yes, Reagan. that's the gla- gag rule. Oh, oh, Mexico rule.
3: City. Yeah, sorry, did, sorry. No. I thought you were talking about the wall. Yes, okay. the abortion gag rule,
0: yeah. All right, and you did uh, TPP – No, forgot TPP. All right. Negotiating and trying to come to an end of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He also threatened to send the feds to Chicago to quell violence. So, well, actually, John, this this gets to a key distinction. What are things that he actually did? What are things he talked about? So this is – well, things – and also um, one of the things that it turns out, and Emily hopefully will be able to shed some light on this, that it's very hard to – understand is the difference between the different kinds of executive activity that can take place with uh, with the stroke of a pen. First of all, just for context, of course, you'll remember that one of the key complaints about Barack Obama was that he did things through executive action and not through Congress. He, of course, argued that because Congress was universally opposed to him, that he, sh- that he had to use his pen and his phone. Okay, so it's just that's the context for all of this activity. Now, a lot of this activity is familiar activity to any president, the Mexico City or or what uh, opponents of it call the, the gag rule, is something that's kind of bounced back and forth between presidents. What's different in this case is that uh, usually it denied, and Emily will correct me here, but it denied funding to family planning or health centers, anything they might ha- that might have to do with reproductive uh, health care. Now the Trump version of this will deny funding to any health outfit that does anything and gets money for anything, if they talk about abortion, which is an expansion of right. the traditional so if you're Mexico an HIV city. clinic as opposed precisely. to a as opposed to a family planning clinic precisely so For those a Zika
1: inc- clinic and the amount of money that is probably going to be affected is instead of 600 Billion? No, sorry. It was an increase from 600 million to 9.5 billion, which is one of the estimates out there from the advocates about the the scope of the um, health care that's at stake here. So it's an enormous expansion. If and, that,
0: that's right. and that executive order, as I understand it, has the force of law. In other words, that's that's yes. a solid thing, as opposed to a memorandum, which is something where you can and this is where it gets a little fuzzy on both the building of the wall um, there are in other instances you can you can instruct and you can suggest but it doesn't have the force of law and then there are the things that he just said that would be the voting um, fraud investigation he wants to do where he's just said that but they haven't actually enacted anything or set any guidelines for it or anything like that Emily what go answer the
3: question that John posed a second ago what what are the distinctions in the kind of actions that he's making? Is, Uh, When he says we're going to build the Keystone and Dakota Access Pipelines, is that suddenly those pipelines are now going to be built? So they're now, you know, construction crews that are already out there digging things up?
1: No, it means they're restarting the process for permitting. So it seems likely that that will happen, but it's not going to be immediate. Um, I mean, some of the other things, it is really tricky to tell what is going to happen right away, but... Um, I mean, blocking any refugees from coming from Syria, that is a thing he can do on his own. And at least temporarily, and we'll see, blocking immigration from several other predominantly Muslim countries, also something that is real. And this idea of having the number of refugees that the United States takes in from about 110,000 to about 55,000, if I have those numbers right, that's executive branch action. Um, Can we
3: put – can we just pause on the – the? this is a moral crime. I, know. I mean we just need I to know. just flag this, that refugees admitted to the United States integrate very quickly. They're hugely economically productive and rescuing them is the right and just and proper thing to do and one that a very rich society like us can well afford to do. And all of us in this room and I suspect almost everyone who is listening to this has a relative who was a refugee or an effect a refugee that – Made to the United States, and the fact that we are turning our back on people who are in the worst conditions of anybody on the planet is disgusting and wrong, and we should be ashamed, and we should fight that. I just needed to say that because it really makes me seethe. This one, and I would also note that this kind—the ban that he is proposing—would not have stopped any of the significant internal American terrorist attacks by people who, who Trump claims to be, uh, you know, that it would target. It wouldn't have stopped things like San Bernardino.
0: Or Orlando uh, right, or, or the nine
1: eleven. L- yeah, it's um, it's a lot of things hurt my heart this week, but I think that maybe was so far the worst of all. Um, so, yeah, you're right about that. Building the wall. I mean, there can be lawsuits over building the wall. And at some point, presumably Congress will have to decide whether to um, actually pay for much of it. But Trump can start some of these things and he can also just make a lot of noise about it. So another thing that brought me up short this week was this threat to sanctuary cities of their federal funding. Now, he, that he doesn't have the power to right away yank that funding, or at least he didn't say that yet, but he ordered the Department of Homeland Security to start reviewing how much these cities are complying with immigration law. And by complying, he means handing over every single person who gets arrested for anything and starting the detention and deportation pro- process with that person if they're undocumented. That's a real attack on the values and morals and and policy practices of America's big cities, which tend to vote Democratic. Um, You know, can I
3: sorry, sorry. can I interrupt you there? Yeah, I look, I think sanctuary cities are doing the right thing. And I think what Trump proposes to do is terrible. But the a lot of us made a lot of noise over the past eight years about the unitary having a unitary immigration policy. And like that if we have a federal immigration oh, no, policy, no, we, no, have a, I, we have a federal immigration I, no. policy. And and so yeah. I don't think it's and I don't think it's unreasonable. Some, I don't think it's unreasonable for the federal government to sort of condition government aid and government spending on compliance with laws. that the, And the president has said this is his highest priority. I think that's a I think he is completely wrong. But I don't think.
1: But there's also a lot of Supreme Court law exactly contradicting you. I mean, that's just oh, not how North American North law North North works. North. There are two lines of cases. One is a beloved conservative principle of federalism that came out of, um, you know, a, a, a case brought very much by conservatives to prevent the federal government from commandeering local law enforcement agencies and resources that I remember that well. It was while I was in law school. It's called PRINCE, but spelled wrong. And the other is the idea that you can't condition expansions of funding on requiring states to do things they don't want to do. Remember how states were allowed to reject the Medicaid expansion in Obamacare, another dearly held conservative principle? That is also going to be very much a part of the legal picture as the cities and states that object to this order, try right. to fight against it. You can't, the federal government has limited powers in what they're allowed to report local and state agencies and law enforcement. To
3: but do. I'm not sure I agree with either of those decisions. I'm not sure, I think I well, think that the federal fine, government, and I think, and I think you, you know, temperamentally and principally would not agree with those decisions either. That you would like the no, federal government to have that kind fair. of expansive I power not, generally.
1: No, uh, that's, uh, look, I mean, I think. Uh, there are, you can think about these things in different contexts and nuanced situations And it is true that there's Prince, I remember thinking in law school, like, wait a second, either you're very principled about divisions of national and state and local power. And this is an issue we're going to be revisiting constantly over the next four years as Democrats and liberals face a federal government that they disagree with. But whether you agree or not, the idea that suddenly we're going to turn on a dime and every city is going to have to turn over its resources to rounding up undocumented immigrants, I think you might want to pause on that. and and decide whether you really think that is something that is the, the principle worth standing on here.
0: A couple of questions. One, local police forces not only do they worry about resources, but they also make a claim that um, if you uh, turn the local police force into the immigration police, then you stop undocumented immigrants from reporting crimes and helping police in the in doing the protective part of their job. The, but the, let me ask you a question about Medicaid, Emily. Those states that rejected the Medicaid expansion as a part of the Affordable Care Act then didn't get the money. Now, obviously, they didn't get the money that was also a part of the Affordable. So I suppose that's the argument for making it okay, but why can't – that seems like a justification the Justice Department can get around. In in other words, if you were allowed to, well, then the question
1: I'll... is, how much funding can the Justice Department take away? Right? Can they take away all of the money that goes to, for example, the city of Chicago, including like the poverty anti poverty programs in schools, or can they affect the funding that directly impacts law enforcement efforts to you know address immigration? Right? So we're talking about like the universe of funds yeah. that's available here. I mean, I also think we have no idea how this sanctuary cities order is going to play out. We don't know how the new Secretary of Um, The Department of Homeland Security is going to implement it. Like, this seems to me in the realm of, like, a looming potential big use of power, but one that hasn't actually taken shape yet.
3: John, I have a question for you. You're a great one for the scope of history and (laughs) precedent. Uh, We forget each time there's a new president, what has come before. How does Trump's first week stack up, both in its uh, expansiveness, the amount that he's done, and in the kind of uh partisanness of what he's done is it is he out uh at an extreme end or is uh, it more or less what what every president does
0: well you do, Mexico City is a good example that bounces back and forth within the first week or so of each so Reagan put it in Clinton took it out W put it in Obama took it out now Trump is putting it in so some things like that it's a ping pong like you know match and it, that happens I think it feels pretty – again, it depends on exactly what here and the and the discussion of sanctuary cities is a good example. That was more of a public relations show than an actual uh, change. Now, it initiated a series of steps that are going to lead to change. The same is true with the executive order uh, affecting the Affordable Care Act, which is still a bafflement to me. And we can get to this oh, we forgot to mention that one later, later in the question of, of lying because – I mean, they did a major thing right off the bat on his first day of office to start dismantling the Affordable Care Act. The reason that's interesting is that they use the mechanism of executive order that Obama used to help the law be put into place. And the the question is whether they will be able to dismantle through the administration – using the tool that brought it to life in a lot of ways. And so that's interesting to me. Number two, it's interesting in how far are they going to be able to go because this is repeal with no replace. Then also interesting in that is I think Congress was caught off guard by it. Um, Congress was just busily trying to meet this incredible standard that, that, uh, that Donald Trump has set, which we should remind people is quite a standard indeed. The standard is no one will lose their coverage at all, that the coverage will be better, it will be cheaper and cover everyone and Medicare won't be touched. That's what he has said. It's it's a promise he can't deliver on. It's worth remembering because that's the kind of fantasy that is where the conversation is right now. The members of Congress have a much more realistic view. But anyway, what does that executive order actually do? It's, uh, you know,
1: nobody knows the answer to that,
0: right? Even the Secretary of Health and Human Services in his testimony in front of the Senate. So so it's hard to answer your question, David. I think he's been in the theater of the of the office, he has been an active, powerful, giving conservatives what they want, keeping things uh, shaken up and chaotic, but this is all by design, and then there's the stuff he didn't do by design, or maybe only half did by design, which is get into the fight about the crowd size and the, and the voting, some of which I think is absolutely by design, absolutely a distraction mechanism, but I think, and then some of it also isn't.
3: I want to just make a sort of sideline point. Uh, I was at the march in Washington this week, which was fascinating and, and heartening, and it came away from it thinking, well, of course, what do we – what do people do? And I, I, one thing that, that I think has happened this week is that Democrats and liberals and, and in the country have gotten very uh, heavily invested in what's happening in Washington, as I suppose we should be, but they're very frothed up about it, and there's everyone is telling you to call people all the time. If I, I had a dollar for every time someone had told me to call my senator or my congressman, uh, I would have a lot of dollars
1: too bad but, you don't have any real representation Exactly.
3: I've been it's true. But I would if those of you who are still pondering how I Jane Q public can can participate and do do things, you might want to sort of step back from this daily froth around kind of the national issues and the Washington issues, which is of course incredibly interesting and important. Um, but think I I reiterate the thing I said right after Trump was elected, which is that this is a moment where liberals can relearn about civil society and relearn about the things that can be done at a local level with your neighbors, in your community, in small groups and in the nonprofits and organizations that you belong to. And this is a chance to focus on that and the small good that you can do in that and maybe not then spend every waking minute worrying about what does the sanctuary city order mean? That's my – Advice. It seems
1: to me that there also are some races coming up. So one of our listeners is organizing in North Carolina. Um, he realized that his particular state rep, I believe, had run unopposed. He really doesn't like her. And so they're trying to find someone to run against her. I mean, that's the kind of thing that is both local and political that people could also consider.
0: Can I just uh take us further down this side road which is in conversation with republicans who are nervous about uh the new president in in the senate and the house and there are a lot of them. What I've found is to the extent that you're saying David uh take this moment of um uncertainty and channel it into kind of what your what your actual values are at the local level where you can you put those values into practice to the extent that that's you rediscovering kind of a core view of yours and talking to Republicans there has a lot of them have said, you know, as they seek to either shape or confront the new president, they are going back to first principles. So in other words, when the president says every country is allowed to pursue its national, this is a very David Plotzian feeling view. Every country is allowed to pursue its national interests within its borders. Um, at first you have to suggest um uh, figure out whether he really believes that because obviously Russia has been pursuing its national interest, not inside its borders. Um, but then secondarily, it's a basically it's an argument for isolationism, for letting countries do whatever they want and not promoting r- sort of Ronald Reagan's theory of promoting freedom for its own sake because it's both good for the people in those countries and that's an American value, but also it's good for national security in America. And on trade, Republicans saying, why is it that we believe in free trade? What are the basic principles we believe in kind of going back to school, not to re-examine, but to rearm themselves for a set of conversations that are about to take place or that they hope will take place? So there's a lot of like going back to basics here that's been created. And That actually feels um, like not a bad thing.
3: Yeah, I like that. That that, I'm heartened by that. In fact, let's close the segment on that. This episode of The Gap Fest is sponsored by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Infrastructure. What a word. Donald Trump loves it. Donald Trump is a promise to be a grand builder of things. Democrats also love infrastructure. They believe that the physical infrastructure that undergirds American society is crumbling and also that the technological infrastructure that we need to be a grandly successful twenty-first century giant upon the earth is also not being built. It is not sufficient to to meet our technological demands. Republicans in Congress are less enthusiastic about infrastructure, but I'm sure they could get behind it if it were the right set of things. So we're going to talk a little bit about how this battle over what infrastructure we do is going to shape up what the different teams are and what their visions are so john what are the the perhaps the three competing general visions about infrastructure that seem to be shaping up in washington And i would put the teams as being democrats congressional republicans and trump right distinct
0: (laughs) yeah i i this is it's my fault we're talking about this and i love this um topic a because it's you know, at its most basic level, it's people getting up every up every morning and you know, like putting on shoes with steel toes and gluing rocks together to build roads, or you know, gluing cement to make bridges, or putting up broadband so people who live in rural areas do creative knowledge jobs, or sell. You know, there's a lot of uh, high tech broadband needs for farming. So it's like all over the country. It's dem- it's rural. It's it's um, urban. But also, going back to your point, there are three different visions. Democrats want just basically... Spending on stuff. The downside of that is you get boondoggles like the bridge to nowhere, but you want they basically want money to go in theory to the most worthy stuff. So if the if the American Society of Civil Engineers estimates that 3.6 trillion dollars is needed to revitalize American infrastructure, they would say, you know, take the top 10, it would include some ideas about rail lights, you know, um, high speed light rail and other sort of uh, ideas that are considered more not just kind of, you know, roads and bridges. And then you have Republicans in Congress who are up for infrastructure but don't want to pay the trillion-dollar price tag. They want to do it either through tax cuts or public-private or um, make it a part of a larger tax package in which you were – and this was a, this is something Rand Paul has put forward, but it was also something Barack Obama put forward, which is basically do a swap. You get some money from repatriation. Of taxes and use that money and put it into infrastructure. This was an attempt by Obama to try and basically give Republicans something they wanted and get something he wanted. It never went through, and then there's the Trump plan, which is which is closer to rhetorically, it's closer to what Democrats want. What he what he talked about in his inaugural address is just like building stuff. What his plan seems to do is a lot of public private partnership. And what, according to what I've read, the experts say is that when you get the when the private Industry is, is involved so much. They want to do stuff that's either going to be durably profitable or they want to do stuff that's going to be profitable. Not a lot, And a lot of infrastructure isn't profitable. I mean, or it's just you do it for the right reasons, but it's not going to make the company that does it a whole bunch of money. So there's a, a tension there. And I'll shut up now, but there's lots of other cool parts of this story.
3: I, John, I, I don't know if you've done enough research to know this, and, and I, I have not. But when people talk about public-private partnerships – What what is it that those projects might be? Is that is that building a road
0: still or it's it's something else? Yeah, um, it's something else. But hold on. Let me see if I got it in my uh, notes here. Emily, do you have a toll
1: road? Yeah, I mean, that's that's right.
0: And a toll road would over time that would continue to throw off revenue. In other words, so that wouldn't be a one time thing.
1: But it, they, then you look for the places in the country where the roads are most congested and people are willing to pay the most money to get off of them and right. you end up in places like Southern California, which are A, not as needy as places in the other places in the country and B, they're not places that are going to reward Trump supporters, right? I mean, if we have public-private partnerships that lead companies to the most Lucrative toll road parts of the country, they're going to end up in very wealthy enclaves where I guess some people voted for Trump, but it's hardly going to be the, um, you know, delivery of jobs and big projects to the Rust Belt.
0: Right. That's uh, so the, the basically the fastest way to answer the question is toll roads versus bridges. Although I suppose you could create a toll bridge, but that that toll roads pr- throw off private you know, money that private uh, enterprise would want, but like, but rebuilding a bridge right. wouldn't. I mean, th- I think Trump, because of who he is and
3: his life as a real estate builder, people in real estate love infrastructure. You need roads, you need sewers to start building things. There certainly, it's very valuable to have roads and sewers, uh, particularly in places where it can really help people, and you can expand and have economic vitality. But most of what, or much of what I think of as being valuable infrastructure, is stuff that is built that doesn't even have that much of a practical purpose for any particular one business that it's a it's a civic good it's a public good it's a public good it's not a private good it's a you know the value of subway trains is not necessarily that it will benefit a developer who's at a given station although it will is that it it boosts the economies at everywhere along that subway development and so the idea that we're instead going to target target to sort of particular private activities seems like a mistaken wrongheaded idea and also misses out on this whole technological piece of it which is really important as you pointed out john i mean that it is clear that that broadband and 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 technological access is the equivalent of whatever of of rural uh, electrification you know from 80 years ago we need that same thing for the whole country
0: two other quick things one is uh rail transit is another one that doesn't have a private funding stream yet or that there's a a, an obvious private partnership and then the other argument that's made by people like the Cato Institute is that when you incentivize a certain kind of private behavior right that the the economic principle I think would be
3: that if there is a private market for something, you should let the private market kind of decide it and not crowd it out with public investment. But there are all kinds of infrastructure things for which there is no private market. And therefore, that is where government should spend. That's that's exactly kind of what the Constitution lays out is the, that the government is going to invest in things like roads, canals, uh, bridges. I think those words are in the Constitution. I could be wrong for exactly that reason. I think so. I think so. I'm going to look it up (laughs) while while we're talking.
1: I hope you're right about that. I don't remember that part. I was going to ask what you think of the Democrats getting out in front with their infrastructure plan. This is obviously, you know, a political tactic. They're trying to call Trump's bluff. They're saying, hey, we're over here. Work with us. But you have to do it our way. In other words, a way that would avoid some of the problems we were just talking about. Was that a smart move or does it seem... Just kind of useless.
0: This gets into, for me, what's the most interesting thing. So um, it's a smart move to the extent that they want to look not purely obstructionist and say no to everything, and they want to create mischief. So what they're basically doing both with infrastructure. With Medicare and not touching Medicare, and with prescription drug price um, limitations that Donald Trump has talked about, is basically going to put up legislation that just repeats what Donald Trump says and force Republicans to try to pass it. So, how earnest are they in their ultimate goal? I mean, They want to cause trouble. This is true of the Affordable Care Act too. They want to cause trouble, but they don't want to cause – I'm not quite sure they want to have a solution. In other words, I'm not sure they really want to hand Donald Trump a $1 trillion victory on infrastructure spending unless it comes – with some other benefit and a benefit other than just making, you know, creating headaches for Republicans, because they would be giving Donald Trump they would be to use a phrase from their constituents. they'd be normalizing Trump and saying, like, you know, so that's a challenge for all of those things. The other thing is, would democratic voters penalize their their lawmakers for working with Trump? But on the Republican side, where it gets interesting is you see the agenda that um, Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan have. and, were Donald Trump not in the picture, infrastructure would not be on it. They've got other things they want to do, real repeal and replace Affordable Care Act, deal with um, cut taxes, cut cut taxes comprehensive tax reform, as it might otherwise be called. And infrastructure may be the price that they pay for having to do those things. In other words, Donald Trump says you can do those things. I was going to say, so I set this up by saying if there was a world without Donald Trump, but of course they couldn't get those things they want to get done without Donald Trump. So he's going to say and has said, and Senator Thune basically, well, he was kind of a noncommittal. So others have said, look, okay, we're going to do infrastructure because he wants us to so that we get to do the other stuff we get to do. That's fine. But the problem is infrastructure is Didn't expensive. Didn't
1: Paul Ryan basically say
0: that? Right. Ryan did, except I think what Ryan's view is, is basically we'll do infrastructure and then we'll call things like- the Keystone pi- Pipeline, part of infrastructure, and that's n- that's I don't think Donald Trump's conception of it. I think what Donald Trump wants to do is go and have be, be at like lots of big ceremonies where there's like stuff building and people are happy. So it's going to get into a money question because it's expensive. And Paul Ryan's got other things that are expensive that Donald Trump doesn't agree with, including price supports or vouchers for Medicare, and has to win that battle in order to get his Affordable Care Act solution through. So there's a coming tension with infrastructure between Republican deficit hawks, which includes uh, presumably Donald Trump's director of the Office of Management and Budget, and there's, there's been Trump. a huge decline in deficit hawkness. I don't know if you have yeah. noticed in the well, last two weeks. Well, all I these mean,
3: people who were obsessed with it during well, the Obama I, well, years are I, now not at that interested. In sure,
0: that. but in the in the right, you're you're right, and and there's been a decline in interest in executive overreach and so forth and so on. But when you listen to Mick Mulvaney, the new incoming director of the Office of Management and Budget, talk about entitlement reform, he's still for it. His boss isn't. That has to get worked out. There are not, not everyone is thrown deficit reduction uh, aside for the purposes of, of agreeing with the new president.
3: I want to say two things. One, I've just spent the last uh, five minutes searching the U.S. Constitution, and
0: I find no evidence at all to support. <laughs> What I said.
1: I'm sad. Yeah. I thought maybe there was a part I forgot. I I'm liked s- that idea. I'm so wait. So I'm in the better. new I'm in the new
0: way of things in Washington, what you're saying is you proved that you were right.
3: I was excited <laughs> when I looked up bridge because there are a lot of bridges, but then it's all abridged, abridged, abridged. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is one reference to roads. Congress can make post roads. Congress's job is to make post roads. That's there you one. go.
0: Well, <laughs> that's infrastructure.
3: Yeah, but it, there's none of the stuff that I thought was there. I know, I know there's some reason why I believe this, but I I now don't <laughs> – I'm too tired to know what it is. Uh, the other thing I was going to say is just on this deficit point, one of the things about infrastructure is and, – and and I've said this before and just to say it again – uh, at a time of very low interest rates, which we are still basically at, infrastructure is a great thing for deficit spending. That If you're going to deficit spend, that's what you should spend on. Infrastructure creates huge benefits in the future. And if you can pay for it relatively cheaply now because interest rates are low, you should do it. And so if you at all believe that government has a role to play in creating public goods, like that's is the most useful form of deficit spending that you can possibly do. One last question on this. How is this going to play out? Is there going to be a bill from – republicans is trump going to make a proposal well here's and when a, would it happen
0: so here's oh, come another
1: come on who knows Please. yeah
0: that's true i mean a who knows but b <laughs> b i mean you know i think you could easily see some some word games here so for example when you know donald trump wants to start construction on the wall they could suddenly just call that infrastructure the way that i like to understand infrastructure although obviously there's a lot of pork involved in this is go talk to the members of congress the people who represent the districts that need the infrastructure um they, there are many, many who want uh, the border wall, but they don't think of it as infrastructure, except for the purposes of making a public relations point. But they don't, you know, infrastructure is is the basic stuff that helps people do their jobs. So I don't know. I, I think like it's coffee. It's, it's a uh, it's clearly a priority for the new president. Um, but uh, I, you know, the passions and impulses of the new president are still something we're learning about.
3: One of the most remarkable aspects of this week is just how much lying the new administration is doing. The president has been lying. He has gone out and talked extensively, almost obsessively, about how the popular vote, there was fraud. He doesn't specify what it is, but there were three to five million illegal votes that uh, cost him the popular vote. He has sent his press secretary, Sean Spicer, out to lie about crowd size at the inauguration, about uh, the general sort of popularity and and extensiveness of the crowds at the inauguration. His uh, senior advisor, Kellyanne Conway, has gone on television and talked about alternative facts, namely lies. And it is pretty astonishing how quickly and how Gleefully, I guess it's not astonishing. I mean, he lied all the time during his campaign. He's a liar. He's somebody who lies all the time. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised as president he's lying. He's now dragooned the infrastructure of the presidency and all of those who work for him to abet and increase his lies. But it is pretty amazing that, you know, you read about presidencies past and how much effort they make to not say anything which is factually untrue you know they will shade they will spin but there's a huge amount of research that's put into making sure things that are said are are factually true if the president says them this president is comfortable lying all the time and it it is uh, weird it's incredibly destabilizing to how we think about the presidency and it also is it's a threat to journalism and it's a threat to the public but in what ways how what should we and and how will how will if at all, in what way will he be held to account for it? So, Emily, why do you think Trump doesn't care about telling the truth?
1: Well, this has been his approach, his whole career, as far as I can tell, that you exaggerate, you make claims that aren't true. And the bigger they are, the less likely, just out of sheer surprise, people will be to to assume that you're wrong. Um, and he's gotten away with it his whole career, too. So why would he stop now? you know, the inauguration crowds, you were being asked not to believe your own eyes because we could all see the pictures that were being flashed even on Fox. Um, so I was really taken as I was searching for an explanation for why one would begin an administration like this. Tyler Cowan wrote a piece this week, I think in Bloomberg View, and he was arguing that First of all, Trump put Spicer and Conway out there to lie as a way of discrediting them and showing how much power he has over them, but that also he is not trying to expand his base. He's signaling that he is standing with his supporters, that that's enough, that he is not going to really worry much or think much about trying to get majority support. We also saw that with some of the executive orders this week, this like very strong, out of the door, um, move to, to the hard right, really. Right. I mean, the wall, um, is something that even a lot of his supporters didn't agree, didn't believe he was gonna do, but that was like a huge applause line for him at rallies. And the other thing is he claims that he doesn't believe the polls about how he was the most unpopular president-elect and, and still remains unpopular. So if that's, if he really is not, um, putting any store in those polls, then why would he try to broaden his appeal? Because he can have this fantasy that actually is broader than it is. And in terms of accountability, I mean, won't that depend on how members of Congress, in particular Republicans, read majority support and how skittish they get about um the unpopularity of the president and then are there things Trump will try to do I mean surely he will that will balance out um you know the deep misgivings that a lot of people are going to have about the the temperament that we're seeing
0: let me go back to the the two big Issues of the because I think they're different. I think the crowd size uh, anytime we've seen that there's a threat to the legitimacy of his election, it uh, sucks up a lot of his focus. So I think uh, also based on reporting and also what we've learned is the fight over the crowd size was a diversion. The day it took place on Saturday was a day that hundreds of thousands of women were marching all over the country and world. The president would rather have a fight with an enemy that has only a 14% approval rating or whatever the media's approval rating is to be both distract and also it's a fight with the with the media which goes to emily's point about shoring him up with his own base and also the media does have issues and uh, uh, so that's. Do you, do you think he's being that strategic about it? He it seems so. He seems so impulsive well, about that's, this stuff. And the- so I, I think you can. In, uh, that's why I wanted to make this distinction. I think in this case, I think with I think sending Sean Spicer to have this fight was also about kind of using the power of the presidency to to put the media in its place. I don't know that he sits down and write, writes a memo about it, but I know he. Finds use as other politicians have, particularly on the Republican side, going back to George Herbert Walker Bush when he was running for president to Newt Gingrich when he was running for president, using the press as a foil. And the press helps, you know, um, or the quote media um, helps them with that. So I think his instinct is he has instincts in that regard. I think he also has instincts to create diversion rather than seeing all these women marchers. I think on the question of the three to five uh, million who voted illegally, this is something he says more in private. Than he has in public. The reason he started to be asked about it in public this week is because in a private meeting with congressional leaders, it was leaked that he spent the beginning of the meeting talking about his crowd sizes in the situations where I've heard he mentions this before. And this goes all the way back to the election. He brings it up in the context of I understand the country better than anybody else is. And I did. I understand it better than the Republican elites, the Democratic elites, the media. I read the country. I was right. They told me I was wrong. They told me I was going to get ruined by all these things I did. I understand the country and the country loves what I'm doing. Now, the the major question in the rebuttal to that is, yeah, but you lost the popular vote. And so he anticipates that and says – no, I didn't. It was all these illegal votes. So that's a riff that he uses because he's creating the the platform for his presidency, which is I have a mandate and I have a special talent for hearing the country. I, th- I my my understanding is that's the context in which it came up privately. Now it's publicly an issue. I think there's a part of it is a. Diversion from actually what he's actually doing. I mean, I guess I would make two other very quick points. One, we do know that in some ways he knows how to use fact checking as a distribution channel, which is he's willing to take the hit uh, for being called out for saying a fact that's wrong in order to get the benefit of the dissemination of his underlying fact. His
1: underlying falsehood. His underlying,
0: sorry, underlying <laughs> falsehood, these words, his underlying falsehood. So I think that is still true and any discussion of the facts needs to be something that we um, think about. I think on the three to five million claim, what was interesting is Sean Spicer, when asked about it, said that is a belief that he holds. So the, usually the press secretary defends the belief because that's their job to defend the president. In that case, he didn't. Others don't. The idea is he has his own views. And they're not going to disabuse him of those views, but at some level, the chief job of a White House staff is to tell the president when he holds a view based on flimsy evidence or no evidence at all, "Mr. President, stop this. your help you're, you, you know, um, don't believe but, that." and And that didn't happen in this case. But John, I,
3: I think Emily raised a really critical question. what What will be the mechanism that checks him politically? from this line is there one
0: well but how well i think as as a senator from the opposite party said about the claims he was making about the affordable care act he said people are going to care when people start dying that was a an exaggeration for effect but i understand the principle obviously the principle is important you can't have a white house saying things that are not so but i'm saying if the underlying fight if you walk into the room and you hear a fight going on and you say what are they fighting about you want the answer to be something that people care about, and then and then I think what you're saying is when does the rubber meet the road? I think it does when it's something people care about. Right. I, th- I assume it'll be something like a
3: Katrina, that there would be some, some event like that where it's very hard to dispute the facts, the images, the coverage, and the pain. Um, Emily, but to that end, one of the things I worry about is that the country has become so partisan that even if you have something where the facts on an important issue are manifestly reveal that Trump is lying and that what, what he says is not true about this or that being great, that there is such a strong incentive for people to partisan affiliate and and accept those lies. Does that mean that we're, we're doomed or will Republicans ever call him on it?
1: I'm not sure. I mean, I think it depends how the presidency develops, especially what happens with the economy, how people feel about their lives. I have to say about the Voter fraud claims. I mean, Trump did also make them publicly. He tweeted them out after the election. He's claiming now there's going to be a major investigation. There are exactly four reported cases of so-called voter fraud. Did you from say the four million? You said four million? four million? Four. I said four. Four the million? Four. One poll worker four million. Emily said there were voters. four million cases of voter fraud. <laughs> and. But it's important to note that these, this idea of widespread voter fraud has been a canard of some Republicans for many years as a reason to pass voter suppression laws and voter restrictions because those always hurt Democrats down the line. If you make it harder to vote, you wind up with fewer people who lean toward Democratic candidates at the polls. And so, There's a way in which this particular lie is very fruitful politically. I just don't think that's a coincidence. It has to do with, you know, Trump's fears about his legitimacy and his excuse for not having won the popular vote. Yes. But it also happens to be one that is very useful for discrediting the electoral process and trying to raise the bars to voting, which will benefit Republicans down the line. And so I think that one is important. It's not about people dying right this minute it's not katrina um so maybe it won't hit in the same way but but i feel like we got to pause on that
0: well it's it's what david's question was not what is important but what will change the dynamic and i think uh yes and this one probably won't what you describe i think is a is an unintended benefit for those who would seek to um Restrict voting rights if they want to use this as an opportunity. But I think the fact that Donald Trump didn't mention it between the tweet in after the election, and even in this case, it was a private uh, event, I think actually is uh, proof of a kind of restraint on his part that there was an interregnum of that distance between when he when he used to mention it and when it's popped out again. Um, Can I mention one other thing that I think is worth wondering about and that we don't have a final conclusion on. So if the typical definition of a lie is something you know not to be true, but you say it anyway, what if this is something that Donald Trump truly believes, that even though the evidence is thin, even though the studies upon which this thinking might be based uh, have either been uh, seriously questioned in one case and in the other, the author of the the studies related to this says that Trump is misreading the information – what if, based on that pretty, th- uh, very thin set of d- data points, he nevertheless actually believes this?
1: Then he is deluded.
0: Pair that with the. I mean,
1: those are the choices.
0: Pair that with the the re- resolute resistance for four months to take on any facts or conclusions drawn by the intelligence agencies about the Russian meddling in the election. So on the one hand, he has a super maximum high standard. On the other, he has a super low standard. If in fact he believes these things, then then we're talking about a habit of mind that isn't about intentional uh, deception, but it's the way he processes the world.
3: Well, there are certain kinds of things which are factually wrong, which we allow people to believe and not call them liars for believing it. So so people who believe, for example, that God created the earth in seven days, right? Like, there is no factual evidence for that. They, it is is a, uh, you know, all scientific evidence. There's a, a mammoth amount of it you know, indicates that that is not true. We don't call people who believe that liars, but that's something we give, you know, people are allowed to have faith about certain things. So there's certain categories of things you're allowed to have faith about. But things which are kind of trivial, about which there is very recent, excellent, scientifically validated or professionally validated information, which is comprehensive and complete, and you still insist that it is not true, then that's a lie. You don't get to retreat to the habit of, oh, this is what I want to believe because it's just how I think. You're lying. Now, it may be that you're –
0: go ahead. Well, no, I'm – but okay, so let's imagine you're – not for the purposes of categorizing this as an outsider, but imagine you work inside the White House. Whether you believe one or the other really determines how you spend your – how you approach your boss. So it's just – That's fair. That's fair. And by the way, what happens when it's a really – because it turns out that the top line on the presidential job description is you will spend all day long being confronted with things that undo your most comfortable assumptions and then you will be forced to make judgments and decisions based on all of that ugly information and that's all you will do all day long. This is a central part of the presidency is is taking information that's inconvenient and – fussy and hairy and making something good of it and being okay with that. And your staff is there to help you out, to point out that even if you believe something, it turns out your lawyers, when they made the case for your campaign against Jill Stein, when she was calling for a recount, said in a long paragraph that there is no sign of voter fraud anywhere in the country. They weren't talking just about Michigan. They were talking about the entire country and they cited the Obama administration's view on that and the Hillary Clinton campaign's view on that. So that may have been them arguing in that campaign, Case, But they did make a claim about national voter fraud and it is at the very least quite a clash for the president to believe one thing and his lawyers to say another. And so even for just the purposes of looking like you have your act together, you might want to just leave this issue aside. That's what advisors are supposed to do. This is not the toughest case that will come before this president. Maybe not even by, like, it's not even going to, at the end of his presidency, be in the top 100 tough cases. So that's, for me, what's uh, some of the complicated things involved in this. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity
3: doesn't cut it. Planning. Let me start that sentence again because <laughs> I didn't really. I began that sentence that knowing where it finished. Let's just use that anyway. Uh, I, like, I like. Let's go pun, to cocktail I like punchy chatter. Punchy David. I okay. like no John, sleep driving overnight. Chatter? David. What's... My
0: center. My my chatter is from the is an interview with General Stanley McChrystal, um, who used to be head of special operations. It's in something called. It's in PRISM, which is a publication of the Center for Complex Operations, which is um, part of the Defense Department, which is one of my favorite things in the world. Anyway, what I liked about it is not only is it a a wide-ranging interview with somebody who is constantly thinking about looking back, thinking forward. He's just a thoughtful guy. What lessons would you have learned from Afghanistan and Iraq? McChrystal was asked. In the case of Afghanistan, immediately after 9-11, in terms of military action, we should have done nothing initially. I now believe we should have taken the first year after 9-11 and sent 10,000 young Americans, military, civilians, diplomats, to language school, Pashto, Dari, Arabic. We should have started to build up the capacity we didn't have. I would have spent that year with diplomats traveling the world as the aggrieved party. We had just been struck by Al-Qaeda. I would have made our case around the world that it is a global problem and that the whole world has to deal with it. And then he goes on. Uh, so can
3: I just say yeah. I have long argued that we should have done nothing after 9-11. But yeah. anyway, go well,
0: ahead. Uh, so this is, of course, my favorite uh, topic, which is restraint. And this is the reason I wrote about. James Mattis, and the uh, counterinsurgency manual, which McChrystal then was charged with implementing and which he did uh, a good job of implementing, the idea being that you don't go in with big rolling tanks, but you walk down the street without body armor on, you take off your sunglasses, and you integrate with the community, and that's the smarter way to de-escalate. Uh, James Mattis the new secretary of defense has said if you're going to take away the diplomats you're going to have to buy me more bullets. The reason restraint is obviously on my mind is you know one of Donald Trump's talents that got him to the presidency his and restraint. also one of <laughs> and also one of his liabilities is his impulse control. And on the one hand his lack of impulse allowed him to create the emotional connection with his audiences that is so strong. On the other hand, it's the kind of thing when your president can get a country in a world of, of trouble. And so here you have McChrystal, who's no snowflake, a tough warrior, uh, who's seen a lot of things in his life, who, um, who makes that case. And it, I thought it was very interesting. The, the overall interview, though, is, uh, has lots of great and interesting things in it. It goes on at, at some length. Emily, what's your chatter?
1: Well, I'm in Memphis, which is a great town for music, and I didn't actually go out to hear any music while I was here, but I got two excellent recommendations. So one is a new um, CD called Memphis, Grease by John Namath, who was highly recommended to me by someone who has excellent taste in music.
3: It's a CD? It's an actual CD? It's
1: an actual CD. I mean, I'm sure there are other ways to enjoy this music, but I was actually handed a CD, which I was kind of excited about. Don't diss my CD. Anyway, it has many great tunes on it, I'm sure. And I'm sure it can also be had on iTunes or wherever you download your movie music. Spotify, Pandora. Um the other musician is named Valerie. A
3: wax cylinder.
1: <laughs> you, keep, you keep interrupting me. The other musician is named An Valerie. Eight track. Oh, David. <laughs> <laughs> the other musician is named Valerie June. And she is also from Memphis, and she is has like an interesting twangy sound um i heard a couple of songs of hers last night and i really like them so i'm gonna go find some more of those too on a on an eight track cassette and pop it into my car i don't see how that goes
3: um i don't think they called the eight track an eight track cassette i think they just called it maybe yes they did Did we
1: had one Oh, my yeah. God, totally. But did you have 8-tracks you in your those? car?
3: You I re- you had I remember having like yes. a cassette in your car, but you had 8-tracks in your car?
1: Oh, we had 8-tracks. These big things, they almost looked like VCR tapes, actually. They were really large. They worked. You could, like, push the um, buttons on the part of it that was in the car and skip from song to song. But, like, not every song, only some of them. I think there were four buttons.
3: Wow. That was, that, was, uh, that was throwback Thursday <laughs> oh, here at the, the Gap Oh, the 70s house.
1: and the 80s. <laughs> they were great.
3: And my chatter this week is about a totally demoralizing story by Evan Osnos in The New Yorker about doomsday preppers. So we all read stories about doomsday preppers. These are the people who...
1: <laughs> super rich doomsday preppers. Yeah,
3: this one was about the super rich doomsday preppers who make the regular <laughs> doomsday preppers, as in all cases, they you... you you come away very sympathetic to regular doomsday preppers and just loathe, loathe, loathe the doomsday preppers. So there's apparently this thing happening, which Osnos identifies, which is that very rich people, he identifies it particularly out of finance and Silicon Valley types are hedging themselves against possible global calamity. And he looks at two ways they're doing it. One way is buying up real estate in New Zealand uh, because the the sense is that New Zealand is pretty self-sufficient. It's very distant from whatever global calamity is happening. Uh, most people won't be able to get there, whereas you, you rich person can. And and so there's this trend of rich people getting, getting shelter places in New Zealand. Most notable and sinister one is, of course, Peter Thiel, who it also turns out has managed to wangle New Zealand's citizenship for himself, which now various journalists are Turning on, uh, turning their their eyeglasses on that uh, question of how Teal got citizenship. There, but that's a separate issue. The other aspect of this that that Osnos identifies is uh, there's an American business of people buying up old silos, missile silos that have been decommissioned in the middle of the country in the Great Plains, and fitting them out, kitting them out for the super rich. So there's one such one uh, in. I think it's in Kansas, where th- there's a 75-foot pool, there's a classroom with computers for kids, you know, place for the huge number of armed guards that are going to live there. There's uh, airfields nearby. You can get a massive LED screen so you can watch whatever – outdoor environment that you're not actually going to be able to see but you'll be able to watch on this massive LED so you'll be able to see Central Park at all hours or see you know a, a verdant forest even though you're you're trapped underground for years and these are all of course heavily armored heavily defended they have huge supplies of ammunition um, it's disgusting the whole thing is disgusting for this reason which is that this is a, an example of where the rich should be investing their money in Creating, making a society that's more resilient and making our civil society stronger so that it will not collapse. Rather than sort of pouring all these resources into setting up a tiny little castle for themselves, an underground castle for themselves, they should be making schools better, making uh, fighting against climate change, uh, making the civil order around them a stronger civil order, and thus you know people won't fall into social collapse and doomsday calamity so uh this is an incredible portrait of of rich rich selfishness unredeemed rich selfishness it's it's very 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 depressing did you read that emily
1: i'm like halfway through it's insane
3: osnos new yorker doomsday preppers rich doomsday preppers our intern is kevin townsend our producers jocelyn frank steve lichtai is the executive producer of slate podcasts annie bowers is the chief content officer of panoply the GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out all the Panoply shows at itunescom Panoply. You can find us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest, on Facebook at Facebook.com Gabfest. Slate.com Gabfest is the page where we post a lot of stuff, including links to what we talked about today. Our email address is gabfest at slate.com. You should subscribe to the Gabfest in iTunes look for Slate Political Gab Fest in the iTunes store or whatever podcast app you use. And please, if you can be in Los Angeles on March 1st, join us for our first live show at the Ace Hotel, slate.com slash live for tickets, March 1st in Los Angeles. For John Dickerson and Emily Bazelon, and David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week.